Okay, we're going to begin our studies here. Uh, we're in John chapter 2, John's Gospel chapter 2. I want to very briefly touch on a couple of things that are important for us, our understanding of the remainder of what is said here in this chapter. You remember the wedding was the beginning part. <clears throat> we spent quite a bit of time talking about the, uh, the fame of the Lord Jesus and his family. Um, He was so famous that he was known about throughout all Syria. Great multitudes followed him everywhere. He literally worked thousands of miracles, thousands. He did so many things the world could not contain the books that John said should have been written and obviously were not. <clears throat> that's a lot of information that's a lot of what Jesus did and again <clears throat> the significance of what you're hearing right now resulted in the dividing of time so that to this day every time we write the date down we commemorate the fact that Jesus Christ the central figure in the whole universe came into this world. And as we're going to see in our studies today, uh, if we get into the third chapter, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you do not understand earthly things, how are you going to understand heavenly? And I'm going to show you the significance of that in terms of what Jesus Christ did on earth that's what provides us the evidence for believing in the heavenly things and so it's critically important that we see the connection between heaven and earth and the Lord makes a big deal over this in his uh, dialogue with uh, Nicodemus if you do not understand earthly things how are you going to understand heavenly things and so God has designed a mechanism whereby evidence in the real world, earthly things, would be so abundant that the whole world would be without excuse for believing in the heavenly things. It's very critical that we understand these things. And so um, the Lord was in, in, asked uh, or invited him and the disciples as well as his mother, who's first mentioned there in the beginning of the chapter, to, to attend this wedding. And we're not going to go back into all of that because we've spent quite a bit of time talking about it already. But we also noted in our last studies that uh, verse 13 <clears throat> This language here, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, um, is the Lord's subtle way of letting us know what had happened in religious circles. 
it had been changed from the Lord's Passover to the Jews' Passover. It's very important to understand that too. This is the Lord's Passover. It's not the Jews' Passover. But you see, they had become the owners of it. Well, the Lord is the owner of it. But this is what's going on in America today. That's why we're in the mess we're in. Man owns education. That's what public education is all about. Man thinks he owns it. Well, anybody that studies the Bible knows that the state doesn't own education. All wisdom, knowledge, and understanding comes from above. Wisdom comes from above. The world says, wisdom and understanding and knowledge is not owned by God. We own it. And we're the teachers of it. That's why uh, we broke away from public education over 50 years ago. Is because we know where understanding comes from. We know where wisdom comes from. It comes from above. It comes from the Lord. It comes from this book out right here. So much of education today, including Christian education, is patterned after the public school system. And it's, uh, it's the saddest thing in the world. As somebody who has sat on the North Carolina Christian School Association since day one in North Carolina, I think that I can say with some measure of experience that Christian education today is primarily patterned after the state and public education. This church and this school should have precious little to do with the Department of Public Education. Precious little. But they want to control it. They sure do. They want to own it. And the Jews wanted to own the Passover. Big mistake. And so in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, we learn that it's the Lord's Passover. Big difference. Big difference. And then in verses 14 through 17, we learn that the Passover, which was religious worship, uh, had become really a house of merchandise, a house of merchandise where the main thing was what you can personally get out of it uh, that will facilitate your earthly concerns. Well, owning the Passover the way the Pharisees did uh, was really carried out by turning the temple into 
a money-making operation. And I'll tell you what, having just said what I did, you ought to be able to see that as a major driving force in America today. Churches have become a money-making operation where the main thing is money. The main thing. One of the things that is very unusual about Calvary Memorial Church is we've stayed as far away from that as we could get. Ever since I've been a member of this church, that's been true. And I'll tell you where it started. It started with the pastor, Kent Kelly, who to told this church that he didn't want a salary. He wanted a free will offering, and he would take it only on Sunday night. And he never knew what his salary was going to be from week to week. He was determined that he was not going to make this house, this church, a house of merchandise. And it's been true to this day. And so our current pastor, his salary is based on what is put in the Sunday night offering. And it's a free will offering. And if nothing is put in it, he gets nothing. If a lot is put in it, he gets a lot. But this house has never been a house of merchandise. But these people who own the Passover, who owned understanding and wisdom and knowledge and instruction. They didn't believe that what you have is what you first receive, which is what the Apostle Paul taught, I think it's the Corinthians. What hast thou, or what thou hast received? What do we know alone? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What do we have apart from God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What can we do apart from God? Absolutely nothing. Well, for those who think they own everything, even their own body, what need has a person like that with God? Well, there is no need. And so what we're reading about here, uh, beginning at verse 14, um, the Lord Jesus comes into the temple, and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And notice that word money. And when he had made a scourge of Small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. 
and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's a quote from Psalm 69 and verse 9. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This was a prophecy written uh, a thousand years before it actually took place. A time that the Lord would go into his own temple, which was a type, which was a type of his incarnation where the fullness of the Godhead would dwell bodily. And so it was a type. When he went into the temple, he was going into a type of himself. And he saw that it had been turned into a, a house of merchandise, which conflicts with the whole message of the Bible that salvation cannot be purchased with money. It cannot be purchased with corruptible things such as silver and gold because what it would require for the salvation of our soul would be the precious blood of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. But the Lord described the mentality of the world in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He said there's only two masters because there's only two religions in the whole world. Um, and the two masters are, number one, the true and living God in heaven. He is the true master. And then there's mammon. And mammon is just a backdoor way that God uses, a subtle way of saying, you are your own master. That was one of Edgar Allan Poe that wrote the poem, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Well, how prophetic was that? of the human condition without God. We become the masters of everything. And so I've tried to say these things, and I, I repeat these things for our memory, because we always have people that are new in the church that have not heard some of these things. But money uh, is what's chosen here to illustrate God's point because it enables the free will to be done. If you do not understand that statement, you cannot understand Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Money serves only one purpose, the enablement of the human will. And so the contest in the entire Bible is a contest between the will of God and the will of man. 
And so man that does not look to God for enablement is going to look for it somewhere else. And where is he going to look? He's going to look to getting an education so that you can get a better job, so that you can make more money. And so success to the natural man is a dollar bill. That's what it is. When a person understands these kinds of things from God's word, then so much of what goes on in the world begins to make sense. But without it, you'd never even think about it. No one would ever think about money as being idolatry Idolatry being not the worship of money, but the worship of self. And that's exactly what a lost person does. A lost person worships self. This is his greatest desire, self, and what self wants. Um... This is the treasure of his life, is getting what he wants. Um, and so the Lord is, has given us here incredible understanding in his word. But you have to read and study his word to get that understanding. Now, once you get the understanding, then you will get wisdom. Wisdom is the power to make a right choice. That's what wisdom is. It's the power to have discretion, to be able to make a right choice rather than a wrong choice. That's what wisdom is. And so that is not possible with earthly wisdom, which James described uh, in his letter. James explained that uh, wisdom and knowledge and understanding comes from above. He made the contrast between earthly wisdom, which is earthly, sensual, and devilish. So there's two kinds of wisdom in the Bible. There's a wisdom that's from above, and there's a wisdom that's earthly. If all you ever have is earthly wisdom, you'll never have wisdom, and you'll never be able to make right choices because you'll never know what a right choice is. Earthly wisdom does not provide that. And that's why the world is in the mess that it's in right now today. And so in verse 17, um, the Lord speaks of the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now what he was talking about was what Paul talked about in Romans 10 and verse 2. Romans 10 and verse 2 explains what that is. Uh, Paul's desire was that Israel be saved. That's what the first verse 
is all about. But he goes on to say they verily have a zeal toward God, but not according to knowledge. And so this kind of zeal just ate the Lord up. It devoured him. It devoured him. He found himself exhausted. They had turned his whole mission in coming into the world to die for them, to shed his precious blood, to purchase their redemption into something that was an absolute waste. And that's exactly the way they thought of it. This is alluded to when Mary came in with the precious ointment. And that was the very word that was used. Why did you, why did you waste that ointment? Why it could have been sold and given to the poor? What is that? Mammon. It's uh, the idea that what's going to benefit people is money. And so the precious blood of Christ had been reduced to a waste by this world's wisdom. And so it was this kind of zeal that devoured him, that, that really trod underfoot the blood of the Son of God. And uh, this is how we're to understand it. So they had a zeal toward God, but Paul said, not according to knowledge. And this is how you understand that 17th verse. If you do not put in there Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, you're going to miss it because that's the key thing that God, not me, that's the key thing that God put in the Bible so that you could understand that verse when you study it. Zeal that is not according to knowledge. And think about that in the churches in America this morning. Think about the zeal that's in the churches. The zeal that caused people to get up out of bed and go to church. But it's not according to knowledge. Um... I'm going to skip over some things here because we just don't have the time to get into it. I, I wish we did. Um, in uh, verses 18 through 22, let's look at that. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake, of the temple of his body. Some weeks ago, I brought a message in this church. I don't remember if it was in Sunday school or Wednesday service. I don't remember. But I said a lot about 
and David having this desire to build the Lord a house. And some of you, I'm sure, maybe remember those uh, messages and thoughts. And the Lord told him, how can you build me a house? While the heaven of heavens cannot contain me, how are you going to, how are you going to build a house that can contain me when I'm as big as eternity? How are you going to do that? And so the Lord told David, he said, I'll build thee a house. I'll build you a house. But you can't build me a house. But I'll let you go ahead and build this temple. But I pointed out that that temple was going to be a type of what the Lord was talking about when he said, I will build you a house. Well, the house that he built for David was what we refer to now as the incarnation of God. God was manifest in the flesh. John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 14. God was manifest in the flesh. Paul goes on to explain this in his letter to the Colossians, I think it was. Um, in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so, right here in this verse, verse 21, it says, But he spake of the temple of his body. Okay, this is why... It's so important to learn to compare Scripture with Scripture because this is God's technique for putting together the pieces of the puzzle of God's Word. It's in pieces all over the place. But if, as you assemble it, as you study it, you begin to see how the, the pieces fit together. And after you study, and sometimes it takes years and years, I know it has for me to be able to stand up here and say any of these things that I'm telling you now. It's taken me years of sitting at the table, as it were, putting together the pieces. And all of a sudden one day I would see a, a partial picture emerging. And I'd look down at it and I'd recognize what that is. At cottage prayer meeting, that's what the ladies do. They sit there and they work on puzzles. And as they put the pieces together, all of a sudden an image begins to appear and they see what the puzzle is. Well, when you finish, as my wife finished one just the other day, and uh, Kathy the other week working on a puzzle, it was finished, and you go in there and you look at it, and wow, it's a, it's a picture. And it's a completed picture, completed picture with all of the pieces assembled in such a way that you see it. Folks, the Bible is a puzzle with thousands of pieces in it. But when you begin to assemble these things, put them together where they fit, then this verse right here, verse 21, fits over there in um, 
2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 27. So that's where the Lord is, is telling David that the heaven of heavens cannot contain me. And so I'm going to build you a house. And so the Lord did. He came into the world and put the fullness of the Godhead in that little body. And that's why I named that message, Who Has Despised the Day of Small Things? Because God put everything that he is in the person of Jesus Christ. Just a, uh, in all likelihood a six foot tall man. I say that because he was fully man, and six is the number of man. If you want to know how tall Jesus Christ was, I think I can tell you. He was six feet tall. Uh, I can't go any further than that in describing him other than I can tell you with absolute authority that he did not have long hair, he did not have dreamy blue eyes, and uh, <clears throat> he did not stand out in a crowd at all. There was nothing about him that caused him to be conspicuous in his appearance. He looked very, very ordinary. That's why a lot of times I wish I could come in here with my sweatshirt on and my, my sandals or something like that. Uh, I don't know how much this is... Uh, isn't more of a tradition of men than it is anything else, as is a lot of other things. That, to me, is a waste, a waste in the church. If you want to know how to get it right in terms of a church service, read this book. If it's not in this book, you shouldn't be doing it. Shouldn't be doing it. So, so much of worship service in all of the denominations is tradition of men, has nothing whatsoever to do with what the church is all about, which is primarily about teaching the word. That's what it ought to be. And that's where the focus ought to be, is teaching the word. So, um, let's... Uh, Let's go on down to verse 23 so we can try to wrap up some thoughts in this chapter and go to the third chapter. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself into them which is just the Lord's way of saying he didn't believe them <laughs> they believed in him but in his name but they didn't believe the Lord didn't believe in them um, and they believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did they saw the miracles well, that's why they believed in him. It's because they saw something 
unusual and spectacular. In the way of a, something that conflicted with anything they'd ever seen before. I mean, who had ever seen somebody walk up to a person that had been crippled for 38 years and say, take up thy bed and walk? I mean, who had ever come up to lepers and healed them in just a moment of time? Uh, whoever created eyes and put them in a man born blind, whoever did that? And, and they were believing in him because of those things, and they totally misunderstood the reason the Lord did those things. The primary reason he did those things is because they would know, so that they could know who he really was. Well, who was he? He was God. And some of them picked up on that. Well, the Lord tried to make it clear to them. He said, you know, when they questioned his authority and so forth, um, his way of, of going about proving his authority was adding after he healed these people the statement, thy sins be forgiven. Well, who can forgive sins but God? Listen, the Pharisees picked up on that. Who in the world can forgive sins but God? But that's exactly what he said. Thy sins be forgiven. Take up thy bed and walk. And the Lord, you know, tried to get them to think. And he said, well, which is easier to say, take up thy bed and walk, or thy sins be forgiven thee, which would be the easiest thing for you to say. Well, uh, it'd be easier for them to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, because they knew they couldn't say, take up thy bed and walk, and it happened. They'd make fools out of themselves. And so Jesus Christ puts the position in front of them, which is really easier to say, take up thy bed and walk, or to say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Folks, we need to think about that statement. Because understanding that statement right there alone is all a person needs to know the identity of this one who had told that man to take up his bed and walk. He asked them the question, which is easier, to say, take up thy bed and walk? Well, that would be hard for them to do, but it was easy for him to do. But it would have been easy for them to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, because no one would be able to challenge it. I mean, how could you know that the sins had not been forgiven? Why, Catholic priests do that all the time. Is it forgiven or is it not? Well, who knows? There's nothing physical to look at. So it'd be easier for lost people to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, 
but it would be much harder. Now listen to this carefully. It would be much harder on God's part to say thy sins be forgiven thee. Why? Folks, it was a lot harder to go to the cross of Calvary and suffer what he suffered than it would be to say, take up thy bed and walk. That's the difference. When Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary and hung upon that cross and with dying words said, it is finished. It is finished. That was hard. Paying the price of our redemption was hard. And so he asked the question, whether it's easier to say, take up thy bed and walk? Well, for the Lord, that was easy. I created the worlds just by speaking. He just created the worlds. But thy sins be forgiven. That was hard. And so it's, it's fascinating to, to see the genius of God and his use of words and how he's perfectly describing the condition of man with the ability and sovereign power of God. And that's what he's doing in the question. Whether it's easier. You say, take up thy bed and walk. Or thy sins be forgiven. But this is how you understand that passage. But they believed in his name. But the psalmist in Psalm 138 and verse 2 made the statement that God had magnified his word even above his name. So this has been explained in this church numbers of times. I'll repeat it just so that if anybody has missed it or we had somebody here that hasn't heard this before, the only way that you can really know anybody is for them to talk. It's by revelation. They have to reveal themselves to you through words or you cannot know them. You can know a person's name and know nothing about the person. And this is what the Lord is teaching us here. It tells us... Um, in verse 23 now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day many believed in his name okay stop right there and think about it what do you know about a person when all you know about them is their name you don't know anything about them You may be talking to a serial killer for all you know. What do you know about a person? So we usually sit down at the table and we ask them first of all their name. Then we ask them where are you from. Then we ask what do you do. 
and we get into the conversation, and then it's developed from that. Well, how do you know Jesus Christ? You've got to know more than his name. The Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, that's where he came from. Where would you come from? I came from above. Above? Above what? Where? Well, I came from heaven. Came from heaven. I'm the son of man who left the riches of the glory of heaven and, and for your sakes became poor that ye through my poverty might be rich. I came from heaven. I, my father is, I'm his son. I'm the son of my father in heaven. And I came from heaven. Where are you from? I'm from heaven. I'm from above. But then he gave us the Bible. Who has despised a day of small things? I'm telling you that this Bible is as much the fullness in a book of God as the fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus Christ bodily. Paul said it without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh and not in measure, in totality. The fullness of the Godhead was in Jesus Christ bodily and the fullness of the Godhead is in this book. Who has despised a day of small things? Can God put everything that he is in a book? He certainly can. And in his infinite wisdom, he did. Can God put his fullness that the heaven of heavens cannot contain in a body that's six feet tall? This is exactly what the Lord meant in John chapter 5 when he told the Pharisees, Ye have neither heard his voice nor seen his shape at any time. He was telling the Pharisees that the fullness of the Godhead was standing in front of them and they had not heard his voice, the voice of God, and they had not seen the shape, the shape of God at all. And there he was, God manifesting the flesh. And so in verse 23... Many believed in his name when they, saw, when they saw the miracles. They were just looking on the outside. But the Lord said, you can't just look on the outside and know anybody. The Lord, in teaching the disciples how to make righteous judgment, he said, Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, how are you going to know what's in the heart of a person? You can't see it. So how can you get to know what's in a person's heart? It's easy. It's through their words. You get them to talk to you. 
What do you think about the Democrats? What do you think about public education? What do you think about churches and what should be preached in a church? Um, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Boy, you can learn a lot from people just by asking questions like that. But as they talk to you, you see what's in their heart. And that's why the Lord Jesus said in Psalm 138 and verse 2, Thou hast magnified thy word even above thy name. Listen, if we do not understand earthly things, how are we going to understand heavenly? We come to know God exactly the same way we come to know anyone we've ever known. We know one another in this church. But it's not just a name. We've been talking with one another and going out and having meals together and fellowshipping together and talking and talking and talking for years. And we know people's hearts. We sure do. Why? Because they have revealed it to us. How do we get to know God? Same way. You can't look at him and know him. He has to reveal himself through his word, and that's what he's done in the Bible. I do not need a picture of Jesus Christ. I've got it right here. All the picture I need. That is why, and I told you this the other week, I refuse and still will and I'll never go see the movie The Passion. Chevelle, or whatever is however you pronounce it, who played the part, he's the actor that played the part, uh, Jim, I think it is, isn't it? Jim Chevelle's, I, I don't know how to even pronounce it. I don't even, I, I look at the word and it's a, it's a strange last name. But uh, I don't want to live the rest of my life thinking that Jesus Christ looks like him. There's no one that can portray Jesus Christ to me but Jesus Christ. And he did it right here. All I need to see God is what he said. So these are convictions with me. Absolute convictions. I don't want a picture of Jesus hanging on my wall. And I never will have. This is the only picture I want right here. And so they believed on the Lord's name, but they knew him externally, which is to not know him. They saw the miracles, some of the things that he did, but their focus was on the fascination of what he could do. They didn't know anybody that could do that. Wow, that's, he's quite a magician. Well, we see magicians doing things, and we look at it and we say, man, that's supernatural. How in the world did you do that? And I'm telling you, there are magicians that can do stuff that will make you think that they're something more than they are. 
because you can look right at it with your eyes watching them, and you cannot explain how they can make some things disappear and some things appear. You cannot see it. That's why the Lord said, take heed lest and, and, and let no man deceive you. Um, well, there's all kinds of examples in the Bible of people who believed but were not saved. One of them was Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 and verse 13. If you want to look at that sometime later, I'm going to move on. James said it this way, Thou believest in God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. That's what he had to say about it. Well, I've got two minutes left. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, the Lord is... is uh, telling the listeners there, the multitude, after telling them how many are going to end up in hell, going through the wide gate and the broad way that leads to death and destruction. There were those that believed that they were saved, that they were the children of God because they had preached in his name. They were preachers. And there were those that thought they were saved because they had cast out devils. They had seen people's lives change because of their influence. Well, you can actually change people's lives with your influence. Sometimes you can do it with money. I sure can. Or sometimes you can do it with personality, just patting somebody on the back because they... That's what people crave is somebody to give them some attention. Uh, but then the Lord goes on to say, there are those that have done many wonderful works. In other words, they think they're good people because they've done so many good things. But he said, I will profess unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. Salvation, folks, is not us proclaiming ourselves saved as though we're the judge of such a matter. The Bible says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. The Lord knoweth them that are his. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. One of the most important things I've ever taught in this church is that you're not saved because you pro profess to be saved. You are saved when God's spirit convinces you that you are from his perspective because you have a relationship that's that close to him. You went to him, you searched for him with all your heart, and he told you that you were saved. That's what happened to Jason Monroe when I sat down with him in John 5, 24. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. It's what he says to you. It's not what you say to him. Word of difference. No one is saved because they pronounce themselves saved. No preacher can say, this young man that has just come forward is saved. No preacher can say that. A parent cannot say it. Only God can say it. He's the only one. I wonder how many churches this morning are going to make this point in a message. But it's absolutely the truth, and it's in the book. God said it. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death into life. That is true salvation. Well, our time is gone. We got to stop right here. I promise you next week, Lord willing, if he has not come and Israel has not been over swamped, we don't have to worry about that. Because in the book, <laughs> we will go to the third chapter and study about Nicodemus. One fascinating chapter. I look forward to it. Oh, me. Julian, dismiss us in prayer, brother.